from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, I want to start the show out by welcoming new members to our Still Growing podcast group on Facebook. That's our listener community for listeners of the show. And this week, we welcome Ann Fitheider, Kim Martin-Meadows, Pam Forsman-Mead, Lisa Marie Hendrickson-Jack, who is a fellow podcaster. She's in a mastermind with me on Wednesday mornings. And her podcast is called Fertility Friday. So if you are interested in a fertility podcast or know of someone who might be, that would be a great show to listen to. Again, it's the Fertility Friday podcast, and Lisa's now in our listener community. Ami Williams, welcome, and Barb Eller. So welcome to the group, you guys. And if you really like the show, I invite all of you, any listener, to join the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. It's a great place to share your garden stories. You can ask questions of the guests of the show. You can interact with guests and fellow listeners of Still Growing and connect with people who are sharing your passion for gardening. And here's the secret. It's also where I post all of the really awesome garden giveaways and promotions from my guests and sponsors for my lucky listeners. And this week, the giveaway was for the... Anna Thomas personally inscribed cookbook. Anna Thomas was on episode 537 about a month ago, and we were talking about her fabulous new cookbook, Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore, and the lucky winner is Barb Eller. Barb recently joined our Facebook group this week, but prior to that, Barb was sharing and posting about Anna's episode talking about her cookbook, Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore, and I saw her posting about it. And so I picked her as the lucky winner once she joined our Facebook group. So if you're interested in any of the guests or giveaways that come up as a result of listening to the show, head on over to the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. And all you have to do is request to join. It's going to show up as a closed group, but you just request. And then once I verify that you're not a spammer or a robot, I'll admit you to the group and you'll be good as gold. Now, there are a couple of ways you can find the group. You can go to Facebook and you can use the search bar and type in Still Growing Podcast Group. And then make sure that you click on the group tab that pops up. There'll be a lot of tabs. It'll be like places, pages, people, top, that kind of thing. And you'll have to select group. And then that will list our group first. And then you can click there to join. Or even easier, you can go to my website at sixfootmama.com and right there in the menu, I have a link to the Still Growing Podcast group. So if you click on that, it'll bring you right to that Facebook page. And once you get there, all you have to do is request to join. So there's a number of ways that you can get there. If you're having trouble, you can always just post it on my business page for Still Growing or Six Foot Mama, and I can definitely provide a link 
in the comments section. You know, this group is also where I curate and post articles that I find throughout the week that I think listeners are interested in or would be interested in. And this week I shared something from Joel Karsten of Straw Bale Gardens. He was on a three-part episode back in, oh, let's see, these were back in episodes 515, 516, and 517. And I think for people who are new to straw bale gardening, episode 516 really is kind of the keys to the kingdom. He goes through the steps to become a very good uh, straw bale gardener, all the things that you need to do to set it up. But Joel recently shared an article by Bunny Guinness, who writes about her garden and her gardening experiences in a column that she has in England in The Telegraph. And she is trying straw bale gardening this year as well. And she wrote a very nice article about straw bale gardens. So I've shared that in the group. And then Gardenista has an article that was written by Kendra Wilson. And I absolutely love this article. It's all about garden designer James Horner's Rootless Garden. So James Horner is a Sussex-based floral designer, and his work takes him all over Europe. And so since he does not have a greenhouse or any type of permanent garden, he gardens in these portable boxes that are gathered around his rented house near Great Dixter, England, where he spent his formative years. And he has many tips in there for how he grows in a very portable garden because he ends up taking it with him many places. But one of the tips that was spelled out in the article, and I thought it was really clever, had to do with how he seeds Uh, his plants. So he had, there was a picture of a seed table. It's just a table where he's got all of his brand new seed starts. And he talks about how he sows seed. And I'm going to quote this here. He says, I sow seeds into a one centimeter, just less than half an inch layer of fine sand. And then I apply a protective layer of grit. The amount of grit depends on the size of the seed. For instance, Nicotania seed should be sown into the gravel so it's not to be lost beneath it, and the same for poppies. So the sand retains moisture, and the grit warms up in the sun. And the rest of the pot below this this level of sand and grit is his mix of potting soil. So that's his little tip on getting seeds started. And I thought that was so clever. You have the you have the quality soil that's the base of the pot. And then you have this nice layer of sand so that when you're watering those seeds, the sand's holding that moisture around the seedling. It's not just dissipating through the soil. And then you have the grit on top, which is absorbing the warmth of the sun and kind of retaining that, creating almost a little microclimate for that seed to get started growing. I thought it was absolutely genius. And I'm going to try it in my own garden, especially uh, in the spring. Not anymore. I'm not growing anything right now, but I will definitely give it a go. So that was one of the articles that made it into the Facebook group this week. And it's just an example of the types of things I try to curate for listeners of the show. So if you're interested in that, head on over 
give it a try. You know, there were a few other things that I wanted to share that I had posted this week. One was from past guest Lori Neverman. She had posted in her blog, Common Sense Homesteading, in the past week about her cheesy scalloped potato recipe. And I love any recipe that's got cheese and potatoes because I've got three growing boys and they love potatoes. And the other thing I thought uh, was great about this particular recipe is that it is timely for this time of year to have some type of cheesy potato recipe if you want to try something new for Thanksgiving or throughout the holiday season. So it's there. It's on the Facebook group uh, site, or you can go to Lori's website at commonsensehomesteading.com. And Lori was on uh, recently as well in episode 541 and did a great interview talking about how you can make little choices to become more self-reliant. And that's the whole point of her uh, blog on homesteading, Common Sense Homesteading. Jen McGinnis of Frau Zenny also shared about Gala Trail's new book idea that's on Kickstarter right now, and it's called Grow Curious. This is the book that Gala wants to write, and it's all about connecting to the garden. So it's not so much of a how-to garden, but it's more about how to be in the moment in your garden and appreciate being in your garden, kind of the therapeutic aspects of gardening. So if you want to support that book, that effort, head over to Kickstarter, type in Grow Curious, and that will come right up. Laura Eubanks, who was also recently on the show, had posted in her blog about her first attempt to plant a pumpkin this year. And by planting a pumpkin, Laura Eubanks is the uh, woman that came up with the idea to put succulents on top of a pumpkin. And then she created these fantastic pumpkin designs and she calls it planting a pumpkin. So she has posted in her blog how she does this, an actual video. And Laura, nobody does videos like Laura when it comes to succulents. In fact, she posts uh, succulent videos regularly on her website, and I'm a huge fan of what Laura is doing. But I thought she did a really nice job. She takes a Cinderella pumpkin, and she just, right in front of our eyes, walks us through how she plants this thing. The glue she uses, although you know, it doesn't matter what glue you use, uh, the moss she uses, and how I think she puts together those pumpkin tops with such great artistic flair. So she makes it look super easy. I think anyone can do it, but watch Laura in this video if it's something that you're interested in doing because she'll be very inspiring to you. And there are just little tips and tricks that she offers along the way that I think make it go a lot smoother. So I did one last week and I'm doing a few more uh, this week. I'm going to give some away. I'm going to do the little mini pumpkins. I don't have such a big top to fill. So I'm going to do a a smaller pumpkin and then give those away to uh, friends and family this week as I get those wrapped up here. So these are the types of posts that I share in the Facebook group. If it's something you're interested in, I'd love to see you there in the Facebook group. In the meantime, the uh, Still Growing Book Club is coming along great. And we are on Chapter 7 of Marta McDowell's All the President's Gardens. So I know that the election is getting close because we're just about done with this book. And I timed it to be done the right before the week of the presidential election. So we're almost done with the book and we're almost done with the election. This week, we are on Chapter 7, which is 
called America the Beautiful, and it's covering the time period between the 1940s and 1990s. This is probably one of the easier posts for people who maybe weren't as familiar with some of the presidents or historical references that were in previous chapters. These chapters, these last couple of chapters are super easy to read because it's modern history and we all have some familiarity with the content. But this week I will share uh, questions that you can use in your garden club if you are reading along with us for the book or if you plan to have a book club centered around Marta's book, All the President's Gardens. It would be a great tool to use these blog posts where I'm curating videos that I find on YouTube that kind of supplement the material that's available in the book. And then I post questions that you can ask as a discussion, a point of discussion in your group. So, and don't forget that in two weeks, Marta McDowell's interview with me about her book, All the President's Gardens, will air. So that was a completely delightful experience for me. I love Loved the book, and Marta is so generous with her time and knowledge. And I think you'll get a lot out of our conversation about the book. We really covered many of the great aspects that are found in this book. So I hope you're enjoying it. All right. So last week's episode was all about day one of the Garden Bloggers Fling, which was held in July in the Twin Cities. And today I'm going to take you through day two of the fling. So there were a lot of things that we did on day two. It was very jam-packed. And for me, it was the first day where I could fully participate because on day one, I had a conflict and then with the kids and then day three, the final day of the fling, I was actually in a garden tour myself, so I couldn't participate. But day two was special for me because I got to spend the entire day with fellow garden blockers and just take in all of the wonderful things that were on the tour that were part of the fling. So the day day two really started out in the suburbs and in the outskirts of Minneapolis so that we could see all of the diverse array of gardening styles and design that's in the city, that's throughout the city. And our very first stop was at Vera's Gardens, which is one of the many community gardens that are in the Twin Cities. So this particular garden is exceptional because the garden backs up to the Midtown Greenway, and that has along it a five-mile bike path that winds right past this garden. So people who are commuting or people who are just biking for recreation to Minneapolis, to and from Minneapolis, are able to see this really pretty little garden that's along the path. And so there's a steep slope that is right that goes right down to the path and all along this slope is Vera's garden. Now this community garden is very lucky because it is supported by Minnesota Green and this organization donates all of the plant material for Vera's garden. And then there are a group of volunteers that work really hard to get the garden ready and beautiful for the season. So there's a lot of pictures from this visit that from many different angles. And one of my favorite ones was posted by Beth Billstrom. She's also a former guest of Still Growing. And she had gone up above Vera's garden. There's a a bridge that uh, is probably about 20, 30 feet in the air. And from that vantage point, Beth took these great shots of Vera's garden. So you can see the bike path and then the garden right off 
the bike path. And so it's just a great kind of visual overview of what the garden looks like. Now, Donovan Harmel coordinated this particular visit, and he's one of the volunteers at the garden. And this was a chance for the garden bloggers to really appreciate a true community garden in the city of Minneapolis. This garden was really a beautiful way to start our day. And all of the volunteers at Vera's Garden did such a great job of getting it ready for the 60 plus garden bloggers that were coming through to visit. And they did a really nice job of answering questions and featuring some of the things that they do to help make this garden really special. So very beautiful garden. One of my favorite features in this garden was the river birch. And this river birch was really the heart of the garden. It was featured right in the center and then all of the different plant material was around it. So beautiful use of the river birch and beautiful use of annuals and perennials in this garden. Ooh, and before I forget, Beth Stettenfield of Plant Postings, she was just on last week talking about day one. She had a great post on the fling day two. I will link to it. And in that post, she shows some really great shots of Vera's garden. And the first one, um, first couple shots are close-ups of some of the coneflower and the butterflies that she saw at this garden, in addition to some really great shots of how they incorporated slope into their garden design. So if you are gardening in an area that has a steep slope and you're just at a loss for what to do, take a look at some of the pictures that Beth Stettenfield took in plant postings because uh, the third picture in particular, I think is really such a great visual for folks who are struggling with design on a slope. Uh, you know, one of the other things that she did a great job of highlighting is the fact that not only are the beds in Vera's garden ornamental, but there are also vegetable beds that are incorporated and that are maintained by these volunteers. So take a look at some of those pictures because I think you'll find them really helpful. So by nine o'clock, we left Vera's garden and we were departing for Hopkins, Minnetonka, which are western suburbs in Minneapolis, because as luck would have it, the Carver County, Scott County Master Gardener Garden Tour was happening the ver this very day of the Garden Bloggers Fling. And so the Garden Bloggers kind of piggybacked on the tour that was offered to the public and we were able to spend about 30 minutes at each garden. Now, since the fling was in my hometown, I was able to kind of follow along in my vehicle and I could spend a little more time at some of the gardens than others if I wanted to since I was driving myself. So it's one of the perks of uh, being in the host city for a garden tour. So the first garden we went to was Naomi's Garden, which was on Highland Trail in Minnetonka. Now, Naomi has basically a city lot garden. It's just a suburban lot. But the thing that Naomi has going for her is she's got beautiful, mature trees that offer a ton of shade for her garden. And she's made the most of it by enhancing her 
curb appeal while keeping soil erosion at bay. So first she has a very inviting front patio to welcome guests. And then there is a cutting garden that she has there as well. And then in the back, she has a private back patio that is kind of a spot for her to have some casual entertaining or just a quiet evening. And then there's a lot of cute little garden art in this garden. So when I got there, I had a chance to talk to Naomi. And one of the first things that was happening is she had these beautiful yellow swallowtail butterfly that were just all over her back garden, which had a ton of uh, gooseneck loose strife. They're beautiful white flowers that look like the head of a goose. Uh, thus the name, but they were absolutely glorious. And the other thing that Naomi had in her garden that I really liked was she had uh, some garden art that was very unique and handcrafted. So she wasn't getting a lot of her material from garden centers, although she did get some there, but she loves to go to art fairs and she had found a lot of unique pieces. One of my favorites was this copper pipe that had kind of been spiralized and then at the very top of it uh, had been attached a crystal doorknob and these things reflected in the sun like crazy so she had them on the perimeter of her mostly shade garden in the back and they just looked like little jewels in her garden Naomi also had a little fairy garden as well so I will post some pictures of her cute little fairy garden she had fountains uh, just it was a beautiful garden and then right as I was leaving this garden she was walking me around the side of her garden And she's like, take a look at this tree. And she had an evergreen that was so perfect. It was just perfectly shaped and so immense. It could be a candidate for the Rockefeller Christmas tree. I kid you not. It was absolutely glorious. So I'll post pictures from this tour in my Facebook group. So if you guys are in that still growing podcast group on Facebook, the listener community, I will post the pictures from day two that I took uh, in there so that you guys can get a kind of a private behind the scenes tour here of what we saw. The second garden we went to was Ruth's garden on Hathaway Lane in Minnetonka. It was not very far from Naomi's and all of these were actually situated pretty close to each other. So that made driving to the gardens really easy. But Ruth's garden demonstrates how to incorporate how to incorporate natives into any landscape. So Ruth is a member of Wild Ones. And Wild Ones, of course, is a group that supports natives. And Ruth had her hands full on this property because she had to fight buckthorn to clear away room for her gardens. And it's a constant invasive issue in the garden that she has to keep her eye on. Now, Ruth did something in her garden that I thought was very special, and that is she put up a lot of postings, a lot of signage about the things that we were seeing in her garden. And sometimes when you're going through a garden, there's just so much to look at. It's hard to appreciate all of the fine detail that the gardener has so painstakingly went to to get that garden 
up to snuff for this tour. And so I thought what Ruth did was really nice because she was kind of drawing your attention to the things that she wanted you to notice in her garden. So she even had a sign, for instance, of uh, different gardening methods that she used. She had a sign up about the Chelsea chop. That's a method that um, alters plant growth. And Lauren Lindsay in her blog, Raven's Court Gardens, did a whole post on day two of the Garden Bloggers Fling. And she featured a lot of these signs and postings that were in the garden as well. It's really helpful when you're going back through thousands of pictures from a garden tour to have these postings accompany your pictures because then you can make sense of what the what you're looking at and kind of place that plant in that garden. And then to take it one step further, what Ruth did is she took pictures of her garden that she had taken throughout the year and showed what that garden looks like seasonally. So you could see how the garden evolves throughout the summer. So uh, she had pictures of what that area looked like in early spring and then by mid-June and then later throughout the year, the different seasons, the different colors, the how the lushness evolves. And it was just really, really nice. So I appreciated that about Ruth's Garden. And if you're hosting a garden tour, let's say next year and you're looking for ideas, this would be something to consider. And again, I'll post some of these in the in the Facebook group if you're looking for that information. You know, there was one plant in Ruth's garden in particular that caught my eye and I will be sure to share this, but it's nodding onion or allium cernuum. I'm a huge fan of allium, but I had never seen this shorter variety of allium that has the nodding head. So if you can imagine, you know how the the head of an allium kind of pops open and it's standing straight up. Well, these allium are probably about 14 inches high. And as the seed head is coming up, it all of a sudden just droops right over and makes almost like the crook of a cane. And then the seed head is actually facing the ground. So I thought these were exceptional. I I hadn't seen anything like them anywhere. I'm sure they're some type of native, but I'm going to order them because it was one of the standout plants that I saw in this garden that I really, really liked. There were many nice touches in this garden, and one of the nice features of this garden included a potting shed. It was painted green, and then the trim on the potting shed was a light orange. So it was a very sweet accent to the garden, and it blended perfectly into the landscape because with the potting shed being painted this kind of light mossy green, It took on this Hansel and Gretel quality where it just kind of blended into the landscape instead of kind of standing out as a whole nother structure on the property. So another thing to think about if you have a potting shed is how do you want that potting shed to be incorporated into your landscape? Do you want it to stand out? Do you want it to blend in? Do you want it to echo the colors of other structures on the property? Just some things to think about. If you're looking for some ideas about how to make it blend in, this particular potting shed would be a great example of how to blend it into the landscape. Well, the next garden we went to was on Dynasty Drive. It was Laura and Steve's garden. 
And what was special about this garden is the fact that Laura and Steve have been gardening for 30 years. They're both master gardeners, and they have literally spent a lifetime caring for and tending to this garden. And when I first drove up, I actually thought one of their neighbors was the garden that we were going to because it's just situated in one of those neighborhoods where Everyone in the neighborhood has a really nice garden and very nice aesthetics. So I fell in love with one of the neighbor's gardens. And then when I got to this garden, it was even more fantastic. So let me first say that on the way to this garden, there is a neighbor that has landscaped this area that's between the neighborhood and a school. And they created this natural border using arborvitae and hostas to such beautiful effect. These arborvitae were planted in a double row, kind of in a zigzag pattern. And then the hostas were fully mature and they kind of flanked the whole base of this huge border of arborvitae that I think went on for easily 30 feet, maybe 50 feet. It was just pretty spectacular. And what I thought they did such a nice job of with the hosta is that the hostas kind of hide the ankles of the arborvitae, which here in Minnesota can get kind of bare and scraggly. So all you had were these gorgeous, glorious hostas that were fully mature, probably two to three feet across. And then the um, arborvitae, the double row of arborvitae, which is such a smart idea. If you've ever planted a single row of arborvitae, you can pretty much bet that within a year, two, three years, you're going to lose some of the arborvitae in that row. And then when you have to replace them, it makes that row look a little sad. So by planting the double row, if you have any loss uh, during the winter time, you're able to kind of obscure the fact that you've got some younger arborvitae that you've had to substitute in that row. And this was a perfect example of that. I have a beautiful shot of this row of arborvitae and it's just really, really stunning. But Laura and Steve's garden, the garden that was actually featured on this tour, is primarily in shade. Their sun garden is right by the street and they do have some sun-loving plants that they've planted there. And of course, like any long-term gardener, they are literally gardening from one edge of their property to the next. So it's covered in gardens all the way around. Now, Laura and Steve were out there. They were greeting us. They have two cute little puppies that Laura was hanging on to as, as she was greeting and talking to us. The astilbe were blooming. The hostas were blooming. It was a beautiful peak time in her garden. Now, there were a number of things that were standouts for me in this garden. First is the use of paths. There were a variety of different types of paths in this garden. The first was a stone path that had ground cover in between the stones. So that looked like it had been there for hundreds of years and it was flanked by very minuet hosta. So that was absolutely beautiful. And then they had edging that went along these paths that were covered in a wood chip mulch. So these had to be hand dug and then reset with new mulch. I, I guess they do this every couple of years. So I had had an opportunity to talk to Laura about how they do this, but it's very laborious, but it looks fantastic. And I love gardens that have defined paths throughout them. So the edging was 
uh, this brick paver, these brick pavers that Laura and Steve had found. And then in between the brick pavers were wood chips, natural wood chips, not dyed in any way that we could walk on to go through her backyard. Steve and Laura's backyard is special because they actually have a wildlife wetland area that's behind their property that they own, and they've chosen to keep that natural as well. So they protect that area, and they do not landscape back in there. They just keep that behind their property and keep it natural to protect wildlife. Laura and Steve have planted so many woodland plants in their backyard. I don't often see these plants in nurseries. I see them a lot at the private plant sales around Minneapolis. But they especially used a lot of these types of natives and woodlands in the border along the wetland. In fact, the owners also have a nursery that they've put in place for starting plants. And they're transforming their backyard into a native plant area. One of the things that I like to do when I'm in a garden is if I get a chance to talk to the owner about a plant that I want to know more about is I'll use Quick Voice, the app Quick Voice on my phone, and then I will just quickly record my conversation with the homeowner if I just want to get a quick little snippet about a particular plant in their garden. So here's an example of that as I was talking to Laura in her garden about this plant called American Spikenard. Okay, here we go. All right, so I'm in garden number three, and uh, there's a large woodland plant with, well, it's kind of like a vining leaf, isn't it, in a way? It's like a... And it's herbaceous. It will go all the way down in winter. Okay. When I cut it off so you see the stalk so I know where it is in the spring. Oh, that's all you do is like leave about 12 inches? Yeah, or foot or okay. however high you want it. Okay. And what's it called again? Aurelia rosamesa. And the common name? American spikenard. American spikenard. All right. And this is the garden of Laura Hansen, garden number three. Yay. How'd you like all the nature sounds that accompanied that audio? I thought it was great. It puts you right in her garden. Now, Laura and Steve's garden is a certified wildlife habitat. So they have that sign that they get to post from the National Wildlife Federation in their backyard. They incorporated many, many beautiful birdhouses into their property as well. And they were really a friend of birds in their garden. Now, the very first blogger that I met at the fling was Margaret Mishra from Canada, from Toronto, and she blogs at homegrownadventuresinmygarden.blogspot.com. And Margaret and I got the giggles in the backyard of this property, in the backyard of this garden, because they had put together this piece with conduit and Margaret, Margaret and I were laughing because we love to work with conduit. And what they had done is they created this, this conduit frame to hold bird feeders. And if you can imagine what a goal, a soccer goal looks like, how that frame comes up and then across that's basically what they had done with conduit. So it was just two posts in the ground that were connected with this conduit pipe uh, across the top. And then from that, they had suspended about six different types of bird feeders. 
everything from suet to sunflower to everything in between. So that piece was very, very simple. Anybody could make it, but it was so clever and it wasn't overpowering in the garden. But that captured our attention right away. And for folks who love to feed birds, this would be a very simple, doable project that you could do on an afternoon in your backyard. So I'm going to post that in the Facebook group as well. Take a look at that if it's something that you're interested in. But it was really one of the things that I loved in this garden in addition to all of the woodland plants. Well, the next garden we went to was Linda's Garden in Deep Haven on Walden Road. And Linda made reference to the location on Walden Road a lot and called her garden the Walden Woods. And Pam Pennick of the blog Digging wrote a really nice piece on this garden. And it's called, I Went to the Woods and Saw Walden Road Garden. And I love how she started her post out. She said, when you live on Walden Road and you're creating a garden, you can do a lot worse than take inspiration from Thoreau. So this property was designed to have the feel of a park-like setting with evergreen and deciduous trees and then installed on the slope of the side yard. There was a hundred foot long curving stream, a pondless water feature that was constantly recycling the water that created a babbling backdrop for the perennials, the evergreens, and the flowering shrubs that were along this stream. And Bryn Haas of Creative Living and Growing shot a video of this water feature that will be on the Facebook page as well. It really was very charming. And then also on this property, a storage shed had been converted into a cottage and the cottage had a Dutch door, a red Dutch door. So the cottage was white and had black shutters and then had this Dutch door. So they had the lower part of the Dutch door locked. You couldn't go in the cottage, but you could open up the top and then look in to see that they had this thing completely decked out. There was a sofa that pulled out into a bed. There was a oven, a, a stove in there to keep it warm, a table for playing games. It really was a backyard retreat. In fact, when I was standing there looking at it, one of their neighbors was kind of guarding the property because they had an event to go to. So the homeowners were not out when we were at this property. But the neighbor was telling me that they have little events and little get-togethers in this adorable backyard cottage. And then right in front of the cottage, there was seating, there were Adirondack chairs, there were there was a fire pit, there was a area for a fire pit, and all of this is surrounded by this 100-foot stream. This is one of those gardens that is blessed with mature trees around the perimeter, and because there are so many trees around the perimeter, there are things that Linda can do in her garden that many new gardeners in new properties are not able to do. So for instance, she suspended an old chandelier from the branches of one of these large trees that was hanging over the property behind the cottage. And you've got to have an old tree or some type of structure in order to do that. But it was charming. And then in keeping with the whole Walden Woods theme, she had set out a uh, on one of the end tables by the Adirondack chairs, 
some of Thoreau's books. And if you go to Pam's post on this particular garden, you will see that the inside of that cottage was just decked out to the nines and everything was in shades of this beautiful mustard paint that was on the walls and in the beautiful drapery. And then the couch was this buffalo check plaid. It was just adorable. Let me just look at my photos really quick. Oh, yes. So another great example of having mature trees on property. Uh, the homeowner, right when we walked in, had a garden plaque that welcomed us into the garden. And there was a tree, a very large tree canopy that was over the garden fence. And from that, she had suspended from chains this garden plaque that said garden it's where your heart can bloom. And then it had this monogram G with all this uh, flower scroll work around it. So it was really, really beautiful. But again, you have to have the mature trees or some type of structure in order to hang those unique pieces. But the garden bloggers really enjoyed this property. And I think not only was the scope uh, large enough to accommodate so many of us, because there's 60 of us trooping through these gardens, but there were so many different little areas in this gardens for congregating. So all of the Adirondack chairs around the fireplace were a natural place. And of course, the adorable cottage, you know, people were walking around that and you could, you could walk all the way around the cottage. So on the backside was this very narrow path. You walked past a rain barrel uh, that had a rain chain leading to it. And then from that, you'd walk around the backside and there were um, even more plantings that were back there. So it was just a really wonderful place. There was one adorable, really cute thing that they had. And it was very small, very tastefully done. But they had at the base of one of the larger trees was a little door or fairy garden door that looked like it was set right into the tree and the door was red to kind of echo the red on the door that led into the cottage and even this tiny little uh, door that they had put on the tree had a little knocker on it and then it had a miniature cement path leading to it with a little flagstone patio just like in the life-size one and then very cutely they echoed the red color with uh, red impatience so one of the things all of the garden bloggers were remarking on is the fact that this homeowner had so many impatience throughout the garden because of course over the last couple of years with the mildew issue we haven't been able to grow impatience so I don't know where the homeowner got them but she had them in mass in this garden she had beautiful masses of hydrangea and bee balm and then the deciduous trees that were around this home were just incredible. The, the color variation and the size, it was just really something to see. So they did a really great job. And again, this will be on the Facebook page. One last thing that that captured our attention when we when we were leaving their property, they had a large old tree that looked like it had had it had sustained some damage. So 
it was kind of hollowed out. And it appeared what they had done is filled this cavity that had started to decompose with great stuff. You know, that foam sealer that you can use on your exterior. And then they had sprayed that brown to match the tree. So it was very clever. I don't know. I've never heard of anyone doing that for some type of tree care. But that's what the homeowner did. And I don't know if it'll help salvage the tree at all, but that's that's what they had done. Well, that garden was really the last garden that we were able to see on the Carver Scott Extension Master Gardeners Garden Tour before we went to have lunch at Nancy Goldberg's garden. And Nancy was one of the organizers of the Carver Scott County Master Garden Tour. And she welcomed us to her lakeside garden for lunch. Now, when I parked on the street and started walking up, you can see how the front yard of this garden poses a challenge because it's sunken in and it collects a lot of excess rainwater. And so what Nancy did to address that situation is she created a rain garden that's filled with native plants. And the native plants naturally soak up the water and then they filter it to reduce runoff. But in order to keep the front yard from looking too too wild and woolly, Nancy chose to use many hybrid cultivars of the native plants that are engineered with the same water controlling qualities of their parent plants, but they're easier to control and contain. Her favorite cultivar is Little Blue Stem, which is a grass that grows to about four feet tall. And she also liked to work with variegated palm sedge, lobelia, and potentilla cultivars. Now, in the back, the whole yard plays to the lake. There is lots of green grass to keep the space open for optimal views. And for us, the garden bloggers, it was our place to sit down and have lunch and look at the lake. And then we also enjoyed a presentation by DRAM, which I'll be telling you about here in a minute. But one of the biggest surprises in this garden was the miniature garden. I wouldn't call it a fairy garden per se, but there are a lot of little vignettes in this little circle garden that you walk into that's got a wood chip path. And all along this circular garden are little vignettes that are made out of small objects and figurines that are placed along the plants, alongside the plants. And Nancy has made these with her grandchildren. So she was sharing this story of how one year her 15-year-old grandson, who had outgrown playing in the garden himself, had explained to her that fairies were just too girly and he wasn't into that. So they worked together and they planned a Jurassic Park-inspired dinosaur vignette for the boys. And as Pam Pennick had posted about this garden, there's even... One composition that shows family members watching a movie outdoors in an aunt's garden. And so you can see these little people that are lounging, that are gazing at a screen showing a a scene from Prince's movie Purple Rain. So very, very cute and clever. And the garden bloggers loved that little miniature garden. You know, as I'm looking back through my pictures of our time together... One of the things that totally delighted me was that Nancy's kids had created a 
life-size Jenga game to play in the backyard. And all they had done was taken a simple marble slab and had that for the base. And then their son had cut a bunch of two-by-fours apart and then had stamped the word Jenga on the side. And then they would play this life-size game. version of Jenga, the game, the table tabletop game. So this is a life-size vor- version using two by fours. And I'm guessing that the pieces were about eight inches long. So if you want, you can create something like that. That was extremely clever. And then Along those lines, they had also created a yard Yahtzee for Nancy's husband. So they had larger-than-life dice, four, four of them, in a basket with score sheets that you could use on the bottom to keep, to keep score and then play a life-size version of Yahtzee. So those were two really clever touches that were on off the side that people could use. And just a complete reflection of the Goldbergs and their whole appreciation for inviting kids into their garden. Now, Dram did a presentation in this garden and walked us through some of their products and offerings. And my personal favorite is the garden apron that is just a half apron that has a large pocket in the center where you can collect your garden materials. And then when you're all done gardening, you come back and you unzip both sides and the top flaps open so that you can easily either throw away those garden clippings or clean out that apron and gather up your cuttings when you're done in the garden. I thought this product was completely ingenious. It comes in many different colors and it was available or it is available on Amazon. And I'm going to look it up for you really quick here. I'm just going to search Dram Garden Apron. And you're looking, yep, here it is. It's the Dram Colorware Garden Apron. And it's got, you'll see it's got the zipper area that just unzips so that you can um, shake it out or take out what you, you're done clipping. These run about 25 bucks on Amazon and 20 to 25 bucks. And they come in really bright colors, everything from green and red to purple and yellow. So give that a, a look if you're trying to find some interesting gifts for the gardener in your life for the upcoming holiday season. But once we were done with Nancy's garden and the dram presentation, we got back on the bus and we took a little bit of a ride to a very special garden that I was not aware of. And that garden was Springwood Gardens. Now, Springwood Gardens is the home of Carol Emmerich's Daylily breeding operation and display garden. And I took a video of this garden. I was in my car, so I could take a video. And I, after the garden bloggers had left, I just took my camera and very slowly drove through the entire expanse of this garden. And it is incredible. It's absolutely breathtaking. First of all, there's a home on the property that looks like Madeline would live there. You know, Madeline, the house covered in vines. That's how this house looks. And then if you can imagine that this house is set way up on top of a hillside that overlooks 
the valley below that is green and lush with fields and trees and plants. It's absolutely breathtaking. You're up so high standing on this garden and the gravel pathways are this kind of orange crushed gravel and it has a very California Napa Valley vibe when you're standing up there. And then of course, all around you are thousands of varieties of daylilies in yellows and peaches and reds and oranges. And they all kind of morph together to make this one uniform, very warm and inviting backdrop. The day we were there was a beautiful sunny day with white puffy clouds in the sky. And the sky was so blue and the grass looked so green. It was one of those moments where you feel like you're standing in a picture. Now, Carol Emmerich, the woman behind the daylily breeding operation, was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And after graduating from college, she married her husband, Dick Emmerich, and they both attended Stanford Business School, where they had planned to work in finance when they were done with college and then retired to California. But that plan changed when they moved to Minneapolis, where they were both employed by big companies here in town. And then at the same time, Carol discovered that she had a passion for growing daylilies. In the late 1990s, Carol met with Larry Grace, who is a hybridizer of daylilies from Alabama, and he showed her how to hybridize them. So she spent three springs working with Larry at his greenhouse, learning how to cross, evaluate, and select daylilies with the intention of coming back to Minnesota and developing her own hybridizing program, which she has now done at Springwood Gardens. And if you go to their website, springwoodgardens.com, you'll be immediately greeted by the beautiful photo of the what I call the Madeline house on the cover. It's just this gorgeous house and it's located on 145 acres and the house is actually called Oak Manor and was built in 1862 by a California railroad baron. Now, if you're not a lover of daylilies, you might be thinking that this place was not very impressive. But you would be wrong because you have to imagine that this garden was surrounded by almost what I would call fields of daylilies, these huge swaths of daylilies that are set at the top of this hillside estate and they're swaying in the wind, and it's just incredible. And then there's this beautiful house and this large greenhouse, not to mention these gorgeous bronze statues that were all over the garden. So they were either actual antiques or replicas of statues. It was just an incredible location. So I have a video that I've posted of this garden and it's going to blow you away. There is a fence that leads in an iron fence that leads into the property. And fittingly, it has this beautiful relief of the face of a daylily in bloom. So it was perfect for the property. It was a very nice touch. I'm sure they had that custom made, but it's absolutely gorgeous. And then it, it is echoed in all of the statuary that's all over this property. 
So between the statues and the mass of daylily plantings, along with the setting, this was such a memorable place. And if you happen to be a local listener and you're in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, you should really go to Springwood Gardens. If you have any special family event, senior picture, any memorable event that you want to find a really special place for photography, this would be the perfect memorable setting. It's just something else. You'd have to see it. Trust me, Springwood Gardens, if you have a trip plan to Minneapolis-St. Paul, put it on your list for your next trip to the Twin Cities. Now, to conclude day one, we went to the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum where we had a couple of opportunities. We could choose from going with a grape breeder or an ornamental grass expert. And so I chose to learn more about grape breeding for the North and went with grape breeder Matt Clark as he provided our small group with a tour of the great breeding program that the University of Minnesota has at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum. So Matt met with a small group of garden bloggers. There were about 20 of us that walked with him through the vineyard at the Arboretum, the breeding program. And he began by explaining to us how when the homesteaders were first in Minnesota in the late 1800s, they immediately began looking for food to grow. Now, there were wild grapes in Minnesota that were growing along fence lines and things of that nature, but the wild grapes aren't good for making wine or for processing for other foods. So in 1908, the breeding operation at the Landscape Arboretum was started in an effort to figure out how to grow fruits that could withstand Minnesota winters. This is where it's really fun to have bloggers that come from all over the country because, of course, one of them asked, why couldn't they grow fruit here? And everybody started laughing. He goes, well, Minnesota winters, you know, every couple of years, it seems we hit a temperature that goes below 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And when that happens, there are not many fruiting trees and plants that can handle that kind of winter. So before the breeding program, we were limited to crab apples and then a very few select native apples that could withstand Minnesota winters. We really didn't have the variety of apples that could grow in our area the way that we do today. So the breeding program has really made a concerted effort to bring in species from around the world that they know can withstand the colder temperatures found in a northern climate. Now, Matt surprised me when he said that grapes had been grown pretty extensively in Minnesota and Iowa in the early 1900s, but as soon as soybeans and corn started to take over market share, they really lost their footing in the marketplace because, of course, farmers could make more growing corn and soybeans, so grapes kind of went by the wayside. Jump ahead to where we are today. Minnesota has been growing grapes and producing wine since the 1970s. Primarily, they were growing some cold, hardy French hybrids, but they weren't able to keep them because after a couple of seasons, they would die back to the ground. So what they had to do at the breeding farm is come up with a new way to grow grapes. And as we were walking along, we noticed that the grapes are growing up on this trellis 
and they come up out of the ground and make this sort of J shape as they are climbing up onto the trellis. And what that allows them to do is every fall after the harvest, they cut them free of the trellis and then they lay them on the ground and cover them with straw. And that's how they're able to get them to overwinter. Now, someone asked if they had critter problems as a result of this, and they said that they have to be very careful with that. So what they do is they try to combat any voles or mice issues that they might have by keeping the area very clean, cut the grass very, very low. And they also put out bait to try to minimize any type of rodent or pest issue that they might encounter. In the 1980s, the breeding program actually received some funding from the state legislature. And the whole point was to try to develop some varieties of grapes that would help in winemaking in the state of Minnesota. So this system of planting with the J-shaped trunks and then laying them down is really something that they've moved past because now that they're getting into hardier grapes, they no longer need to do that. And as Matt pointed out, it wouldn't be cost effective to grow grapes in this manner. You wouldn't be able to make a profit. So here's a quick clip of Matt talking about the types of grapes that are grown in this breeding program. So in our current breeding, we have um, several varieties. Frontenac was our first wine grape, which you might know about if you're from Minnesota. Uh, we also have derivations of Frontenac and mutated. So we have Frontenac Blanc and Frontenac Gris, which are uh, uh, a gray and a white style wine. And then we also have Marquette, which is a newer red but that came out in 2006. Uh, we have La Crescent, which is a really aromatic, flavorful, uh, it's called La Crescent. Oh, sorry. And actually all of the names that we've used for our wines are places in Minnesota. Frontenac is a state park. Um, La Crescent, um, I'm not gonna remember what that is. Marquette is named for an explorer who traveled across Minnesota. Um, and then our newest variety is coming out in 2017 is called Itasca. And if you know anything about the Mississippi River, Itasca is our state park and where the headwaters for the Mississippi start. And so another homage to our, our great state of Minnesota. Now at this point, one of the garden bloggers who was from Vermont said she recognized a lot of the varieties because they're also grown in the state of Vermont where, again, they're facing colder temperatures. So that made complete sense. But she asked about Itasca and how long it would take in order for that vine to be able to produce enough grapes in order to make wine. And Matt's answer was that it would take about four to five years for the vines to mature enough to produce enough fruit in order to make wine. Uh, so it's a little bit of a shorter process than, for instance, an apple tree growing apples. But at the same time, it is a big investment in time and labor. Next, Matt talked to us about the difference between these grape cultivars and native grapes. And he starts to tell us about the properties of native grapes. Let's take a listen. Um, maybe 10% more sugar in the berries than some of the grapes here, or even a two times as much sugar as a table grape that you get at the supermarket. So it had really good traits. Some of the, the native species that we use, Vitus riparia is one of them. Labrusca is another one. So over this 120 year period of breeding grapes, we've been able to try to capture those really good traits for the native things, get the berries to be larger, get the acid levels to come down, maintain the high sugar, um, interesting flavor profiles. 
So it's kind of a a trade-off in trying to incorporate some of those things. Because if you lived here, you would say, oh, I see grapes growing here. Why aren't they really that great for me to eat? So similar for apples, we could grow crab apples, but no one wants to process a little apple that's that big. So Honeycrisp, you're probably all familiar with, was developed um, at this property here. How do you get the vine to get that J formation? What do you do? We actually um, grow them when they're young and just lay them and kind of grow them at an angle. And then at the end of the season, we pull it with a string and kind of get a little curve in it. Okay. Uh, and then you cut off any... Anything that's growing straight up. Okay. The audio quality, unfortunately, isn't really great, but I want to share with you a few more clips of Matt's talk with us. The next piece is him talking about the fact that they have a winery on site and they're actually making wine. And here he's talking about the implications of that entire process. So we actually produce as much wine as we can. So, for example, if this is a new grape, and we were really interested in it, we would harvest as much fruit as we can and make a very small batch of wine. Hmm. Something like this would probably produce, I don't know, three or four cups of juice, and we would produce a very small batch of wine, and then we would taste that in March or so and decide, yeah, I made a good wine or it didn't, um, and then if it didn't or it got lots of disease, we just come along with our pruning shears and take it out. So we have about 11 acres of grapes, and that translates to about 10,000 vines. And most of those are unique. So they're things that you've never heard of. All they have might be just the name of the two parents and its spot in the, in the vineyard. Others, um, like Minnesota 1376, kind of start to come to the top. We'll keep that one around for a little bit longer, especially since we use it as a parent. We'll keep that in the process, um, keep it around probably for the next five to 10 years, see how it performs. But if it doesn't perform well, like I said, we most, Gardeners, homeowners, breaks your heart to kill a plant. This is our job. Um, we're gonna, we planted 5,000 new vines this year. And in the end of 10 years, we might have one or two of those that have kind of risen to the surface. Yes, so those stats really blew us away because they're really trying to find the needle in the haystack when they're doing research on trying to find the breed that can withstand our extreme temperatures up here in the north, whether it's for apples or grapes. And here Matt answers my question about what was wrong with my grapes this summer. And he helps me distinguish between powdery mildew and downy mildew. Take a listen. You mentioned disease and I have the Swenson red and they're getting little white uh, things on the berries. Sure. What do you think that is? Probably powdery. Where, where do you live? Minnesota. Maple Grove. Yeah, it's probably powdery mildew, but it also might be downy mildew. Uh, grapes have lots of different diseases. Those are the two main ones. Powdery mildew is interesting because it's on the top surface of the leaf, and downy mildew is on the bottom surface of the leaf. And someone just created this great mnemonic device for me last week about um, downy is what you use on your bottom, and powdery is on the top on your face. <laughs> so you can... So next I asked Matt about what it's like to be a resource for local winemakers. So are you guys a big resource for the local vintners then? Are they contacting you with questions or? Yes. So I have an extension appointment. So that means I engage with growers and winemakers. Okay. Um, so we get a lot of calls about all sorts of things like how to prune and how to train young vines and what and. I've got this insect, what do I do, and how do I deal with this pest? 
And next, Matt shares the story of the Honeycrisp, which almost wasn't. Honeycrisp, uh, the story there is interesting. It was slated to be taken out, and we had a new plant breeder come in, and he basically said it's been growing in a really poor location. They kept it around this long, so they propagated it and put, a, uh, I think, four trees, and then decided, wow, we really have something here. And there's one one of those, I believe, original trees behind these cabins. Um, but Shelly's right, it's in pretty rough shape. And last but not least, here is probably one of the more fascinating clips on what it's like to have the job of an apple breeder. Our apple breeder walks through and bites an apple, spits it out, bites an apple, spits it out. And one out of 10,000, you know, or maybe finds 15 a year, 15 out of maybe 3,000 that are good. Wow. And similarly, we do that on grape. Um, and it kills your teeth. There's a lot of acid. I was going to ask what their dental issue is. Yeah, your enamel goes away pretty quick. So, Again, that was Matt Clark of the University of Minnesota's fruit breeding program located at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum. And after about 40 minutes of a personalized tour with Matt, we got back on the bus and headed back to the Arboretum where we went on another tour with Tim Kenny to talk about the Arboretum, and the university's work regarding honeybees and native bees. Now, this was a real treat because we got a sneak peek into the Tajian Bee and Pollinator Discovery Center, which was not set to open until the middle of September, and we were able to take a sneak peek about two months earlier. Now, as luck would have it, the Tajian Bee and Pollinator Center is right by the iconic Big Red Barn that's on the Landscape Arboretum property. And so many people have photographed and painted this Big Red Barn, but previous to this, it's been really inaccessible. And now, with the Pollinator Center being literally right next door to it, it's about to get a lot more traffic. So as we're walking up to the Pollinator Center, one of the things that we noticed is there are little gardens that are out front and all of the plants that are in the gardens are pollinator friendly. And there's a couple of areas that show substitutions that people can make, substitute plantings that people can put in place instead of lawns. So these would be pollinator friendly ground covers, things like clover. And these were being grown and demonstrated in these beds for people who come visit the Pollinator Center. In a nutshell, the Discovery Center is home to a couple of different activities. First, there's the honey house where honey can be harvested. Second is the lab where visitors can watch loop running videos on monitors about bees. And then there's the apiary. Now, recently, Rhonda Fleming Hayes, the author of Pollinator Friendly Gardening, was featured at the Discovery Center with a Meet the Author and Book Signing event. And now that the center is open to the public, there are classes being held on everything from houseplants to pollinators and art. Way back in July, when we were taking our sneak peek with Tim Kenny, all of this had yet to materialize, and Tim was giving us a quick preview of the plans they had in place for the Discovery Center. Let's listen to this clip. Well, welcome to the Bee and Pollination Center. The building will open to the public on September 18th, so we'll, we have a preview for you today. And we'll walk through the different spaces. Laura will be looking, telling you about some parts of it, and I'll be telling you about other parts. 
So you've got a sneak peek. You're in first. You. Ready? We're going to go right through here. Come on in. That's awesome. Thank you. So this is the entry space. And the very first thing that people will see when we're open is right behind me through, these, through this black wall will be beehives. A set of beehives. So that's the first thing. This is the Bee and Pollination Center. Um, and that's the first thing we want people to see when they walk in. It's right there. And it's safe. You can walk right up to the glass for people that are, might be concerned. We can, we'll be able to do demonstrations, as you can imagine. You can all see through it, right, where you are. Good mm-hmm. viewing right through. Well, as you can tell from that clip, there is a lot of glass in the Discovery Center. The windows are wide open, floor to ceiling, and you can see all of the beautiful valley and rolling hills that surround the center. So in addition to walking in and seeing the bees at work in their hives right when you walk through the door, there's also the brand new honey house that's part of the Discovery Center. And visitors who go to the honey house will also be able to see up close and personal how honey is extracted from the honeycomb. The honey center has a warming room, extractors, and other equipment. The plan is to show visitors the entire process of harvesting and bottling honey. And already today, the center has expanded the offerings that the Arboretum is able to make available to the public, and its opening has been a huge success. Once we wrapped up at the Pollinator Center, it was back to the Arboretum for the fling dinner. The dinner was an opportunity for the bloggers to sit together and celebrate a great fling experience. There were prizes and giveaways from the sponsors of the fling. Peggy Ann Montgomery gave a wonderful presentation about growing native plants. In fact, she's going to be on a future episode of Still Growing. So look for that in December. And there was a little time for people to explore the Arboretum and check out the gift store. And that was a wrap on day two. So as you can see, these days are really full on the fling. So if you're thinking about going to the 2017 Garden Bloggers Fling and you are a garden blogger, you're going to want to go to the Garden Bloggers Fling website. Just Google Garden Bloggers Fling. And next year's fling, the 2017 fling, is taking place June 22nd through the 25th in the Capital Region in Maryland, D.C. and Virginia. And if you go to the website, you'll see that there is a $300 registration fee and that will get you registered. What you'll need to do is send an email to Tammy Schmidt, who is the director of the 2017 fling. And then once she verifies that you are a garden blogger, she will send you a link so that you can register for the fling. She's capping attendance at 100 participants. So you're going to want to get registered as soon as possible. Don't waver on that. She had just posted late last week that she had already over 50 registrants. And then once you do that, it will kind of set in motion everything from hotels and anything else that you might want to get organized for a trip out to D.C. next summer. But hopefully this series on the Garden Bloggers Fling gives you an idea of the types of things that the bloggers explore when we get together for this event. So as a wrap, I will have all of the photos that I mentioned in today's show on my website at sixfootmama.com. And I will share them in our Facebook group. Again, that's the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. 
And all you have to do is search for that in the search bar or go to my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can see all of the links to the websites that have covered the Garden Bloggers Fling in addition to my photos from day two of the Garden Bloggers Fling. And up next week, we'll be covering day three of the Garden Bloggers Fling, the finale of the Fling. And I'll be joined by fellow Garden Bloggers, Gail Eichelberger, Julie Thompson Adolph, Diana Kirby, and Helen Battersby. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions for helping put this show together. David Myers, Ein Kadena, and David Gregerson. I want to thank my production assistant, Taylor Davey, and of course, all of you for listening. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. And if you go to Pam Pennick's post on this, and if you go to Pam Pennick's post on this particular, <laughs> if I say one more P,